Stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, visit www.3cr.org.au. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced on the unceded Wurundjeri lands at 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, and brought to you with the support of the ACE Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth. My name is AC, and on today's show you'll hear a talk by Alex Etney-Brown, a PhD student from Melbourne University, who is researching the effects of drone warfare. She gave a talk on the subject at the IPAN conference in Nam, Melbourne, which happened in the second week of September. Um, So this year, earlier in the year, I travelled to Afghanistan to meet with people who have lived in or are still living in areas subjected to drone bombardment and drone surveillance. Uh, I also worked worked for four months in Athens with uh, Afghan asylum seekers and refugees, and I did a further two months of fieldwork in the United States interviewing former Air Force drone personnel. Um, But I won't be talking so much about that United States side of my research uh, this afternoon because we just don't have enough time. Um, My research is qualitative, not quantitative, so it takes seriously people's personal testimonies. Um, The stories that Afghan people shared with me highlighted profound and all-encompassing effects on their emotional and psychosocial well-being beyond anything I had ever imagined despite researching drone warfare for four years before going on the fieldwork. I'll only cover about three of the primary effects that I found out about today. Um, Just a note about these illustrations. They were done by a local illustrator called Rachel Ang. Um, We worked together with Natasha Mitchell from the ABC to produce a piece called What It's Really Like to Live Under Drone Warfare. Um, I encourage you to check it out. Uh, Her drawings are really uh, powerful, I think, and because I have to keep my participants anonymous, I can't share any of the photographs I've taken, and I think that the illustrations do a really good job um, of demonstrating what it's like to live under drones. Okay, so most of my interviewees are regularly reminded of the day that they were injured or that they lost their relative by the sound of drones flying above. Drones have become an everyday part of their lives. In Pashto, drones are referred to as bunginga and in Dari, bungak. Um, And both of these words are onomatopoeias because of the bung noise that drones make. Uh, So Abdul, one of my participants, is 45 years old and he's from Wadak province. He lost his younger brother in a drone attack in 2015. He's reminded of this day multiple times a week. All day and all night it is there, he told me. It is is non-stop in our village. Um, Abdul had even heard a drone the night before he met with me and had only slept two hours. Abdul says that he thinks of his brother a lot because they were close and that he has flashbacks of coming across his brother's remains. He gets nightmares. I asked if the nightmares are about the day his brother died. He said, they are about the day my brother died, but they're also more about the drone's sound. The fear is because when we hear the drone, we think it will strike again, like it struck and killed my brother. Mackay is a 35-year-old coochie farmer from Coast Province, and he lost six of his family members in a drone attack in 2015. 
I asked, how do you feel now when you hear the drones? I'm afraid a lot, he said. I think, who will be attacked? More innocent people? Will they be the casualties? From time to time, I hear the drone going in our area, and when I hear it, I feel very bad. So this was a common experience amongst most of the people I spoke to in Afghanistan, that every time they hear a drone, they simultaneously are reminded of a past experience where they were injured themselves or they lost a relative, um, while also fearing an imminent attack in the future on either themselves or someone they know. So some of the most serious effects, and those that are unique to drone warfare in comparison to regular aircraft, result from living under persistent surveillance. Um, I asked everyone I met with in Afghanistan what they knew and understood about the capabilities of drones, and everyone had at least a basic understanding that drones have surveillance cameras on them. Um, and some people even had a very sophisticated understanding, including one guy who actually mentioned specific programs that NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden leaked a few years back. So the Afghan people I spoke to therefore have uh, both the knowledge that they're being spied on by Americans who have very little understanding of their culture, and on the other hand, they also know that innocent people are often killed. So with these two things in mind, uh, they've decided to make changes to their regular social and economic behaviors um, in an effort to not be seen as suspicious from Americans watching them from above. So a variety of cultural customs, such as neighbors taking turns to cook dinner for one another, or staying at a relative or a friend's house if they've just lost a loved one, have diminished. Uh, the latter is referred to as gum sheriki, literally meaning to share in one's sadness. These social customs are very important in every culture. I'm sure we recognize a lot of these in our own, uh, but particularly in Pashtun culture, which is uh, based a lot around hospitality. And this is demonstrated in a, pro a Pashtun proverb that Gul Muhammad shared with me, which basically translate, translates to love will increase by going and coming, meaning as I come to your house as a visitor and you come to my house as a visitor, our love and our friendship will grow. Um, celebrations of Eid, which are hugely important in all Muslim communities, uh, have also been affected. So it used to be the case that they would celebrate late into the evening, um, and they would take turns cooking dinner for one another. But I was told that now uh, people will go home early in the afternoon because it's considered dangerous to change your normal behavior and be uh, at, a, at a friend or a relative's house in the evening, that the Americans might spot this change in normal behavior and decide to launch a drone attack or to start a night raid. So villagers do not travel anywhere at nighttime and avoid gathering in groups. Groups of civilians have been attacked by drones in the past. This includes weddings, funerals, and jurgas, which are local political meetings. Um, so they've avoided group interaction. I met an 18-year-old boy from Host Province who lost his father in a drone attack. And he told me that his friends used to stay out late in the evening, uh, chatting, joking, throwing stones, playing cricket, uh, being regular teenagers and that they don't do this anymore because of fear and sadness. Fear for future attacks and sadness about the attacks that have happened in their community. So as you can imagine, this has a profound uh, effect on the psychosocial well-being of Afghan people. 
living in a war-torn and impoverished country like Afghanistan presents uh, a lot of emotional and psychological stressors. And all of us rely on our family and our friends and our support systems. Um, but that's been stripped away from Afghan people by drone warfare. And people are therefore left to cope in isolation. Um, I just thought I'd give this example because it happened a couple of days ago of how uh, poor the Americans' understanding of Afghan culture is. I don't know if anyone saw this. It's from two days ago. Um, so the U.S. Uh, military dropped a whole bunch of leaflets over Parwan province, which is, I traveled through Parwan province. It's just above Kabul province. Um, and you can see on the left here, it's an image of a lion chasing a dog. And on the dog, they've taken the kalama from the Quran and superimposed it. Um, and they took, it, they took this script because it's on the Taliban flags, but it's also just the, the um, declaration of faith for all Muslim people. It's what is at the beginning of the Quran. Um, and only a day after that attack, I think it was a day, uh, the Taliban launched a suicide attack saying that it was retaliation for this cultural insensitivity. America has been in Afghanistan for 16 years, uh, and this is their level of cultural understanding. Um, so another uh, profound effect is that of um, the violation of privacy that comes with living under constant surveillance. It was tricky for me to meet uh, with Afghan women from rural provinces in Afghanistan. But the one woman who I did meet told me that her and her friends often talk about living under, under surveillance um, and how that means being watched by American men. I asked, what do you think of drones watching the communities? She said, it's very impolite of them to watch women. The women walk freely in my house and do different things. It's a dishonor to us and it's impolite. It's bullshit, silly. I said, do the women talk to each other about this? Yes, we talk because we're unhappy when they go on top of us. We women are afraid, of lot, afraid a lot, but we're also unhappy that they hover over us. We tell each other when we hear a drone has come again, we try to keep on our scarves. Many of the men that I spoke to corroborated this, speaking about the experiences of their wives and their sisters. I spoke to three uh, men from Wadak province, Ahmed, Muhammad, and Ahmadullah, in a group interview, and they told me that when our family members hear the drone, they will walk around, even in their house, with their hijab on, and they don't like to be seen and to be watched. It's a disrespect and a dishonor to their humanity. Ahmed said, in our culture, if you go to your uncle's house, then you'll knock on his door. Even in your own house, you'd start coughing so that your sisters know that you're coming before you enter the room. This is how careful and polite we are with each other. So when people watch us from above, we are unhappy and we're disappointed. If we go to a villager's house, even if we know them well, we will knock on their door. We don't want to disrespect them or be impolite with them. When they watch us from above, they are entering into our house. So other than being incredibly sad, it's also somewhat ironic uh, that American surveillance drones um, are causing women to cover up and to limit their mobility and their activity outside, uh, considering the 2001 intervention in Afghanistan was sold to the Western public as this liberal democratic liberation mission, mission of oppressed Muslim women. 
That's Alex Etney Brown speaking about her research investigating the cultural and psychological effects of drone warfare. You're listening to the Radioactive Show, produced at 3CR in Nam, Melbourne. If you're interested, I've added a link to the pictures that Alex mentioned, based on her interviews, onto the Radioactive Show Facebook page. In the second half of the show, Alex talks about anti-drone activism and the role of civilian casualty counts. Um, so civilian casualty counts are important, and they do have an important place to play, an uh, important role to play, rather, um, because they do offer effective rebuttals against government figures. Uh, so, for example, last year when the Obama administration finally succumbed to public pressure to release its drone civilian casualty counts for Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia, uh, the information that the Bureau for Investigative Journalism had gathered was actually really, really uh, important and a useful tool in showing that the U.S. government was being very dishonest with the figures it produced. Um, however, at the same time, civilian casualty counts can be just as dehumanizing as pro-drone pro rhetoric often is. As a person's rich and complex life world is reduced to just a quantitative marker. Um, a person's death has wide-ranging and serious effects on the people that they leave behind. And this is missed out when we just voice our concern in terms of civilian casualty numbers alone. So I think that if we're going to draw upon civilian casualty figures, we have to do it uh, at the same time that we're making uh, it clear of these wider psychological and social effects. Um, the other point is quite a bit more complicated, um, but do bear with me because it's really important. Um, Anti-drone activism is often articulated in terms of illegality. That is, that it's an extra uh, a program um, that's illegal and one of extrajudicial assassination. I'm sure you've all heard this uh, argument before. Um, it more often than not pertains to drone attacks happening in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia, countries with which the United States is not formally at war. The problem with this, well, one of the problems with this is that civilians in the most drone-bombed countries in the world, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria, are forgotten when we talk about drones only in this way. Um, the argument also reifies the so-called formal declarations of war in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria, the authorization to use military force in 2001, which itself was a very ambiguously worded um, document that has no uh, geographic or time constraints for the war. In fact, the United States has not formally declared war since World War II. In Australia, formal declarations of war are not standard practice either, and both Peter Wish Wilson and Scott Ludlam talked a little bit about this. Um, there was no statement given to Parliament about the Howard government's decision to deploy Australian soldiers to Afghanistan in 2001. They were just deployed. Uh, in the war in Iraq, Australian involvement was debated in the Parliament and Senate, but only after the Howard government had already committed and sent every branch of the ADF into Iraq. So to me, there's very li little difference in legitimacy or acceptability between so-called military activity and so-called formally declared war zones as compared to Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, or Libya. Uh, one move within the legal space that does have my total support um, 
is pressure being put on the United States government to reduce the ambiguity within its legal terms by providing much clearer definitions of things like imminent threat and infeasible capture. Um, a recent report by Columbia Law School and SANA International argues that these terms are intentionally vague and that the U.S. must provide detailed explanations of these categories. So, for example, the U.S. can too, uh, too easily justify a drone attack by saying that capture was infeasible uh, without giving any details as to why capture was infeasible. Um, I think this project's really important, as I said, uh, but I also think that we shouldn't be naive about the capacity of international law to constrain the violence of war or to protect civilians. Um, many academics working in this space refer to drone warfare as lawfare. That's how integral both the law and lawyers have become to the functioning and the legitimacy of the drone program. Um, so lawyers called Judge Advocate General Officers, core officers, they're embedded within the kill chain. They're actually there making lethal decisions. Uh, legal uh, terms are often used and employed by U.S. coalition governments to justify what they do with drones. So in my opinion, legal objections to drone warfare should always be voiced alongside ethical objections to warfare, which ought to promote both anti-racist and anti-Islamophobic foreign policy. It is no coincidence that Muslims in the greater Middle East have historically had fewer legal protections against bombardment and surveillance. It's a legacy of colonialism. From Britain's air policing of Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq, throughout the interwar period, uh, to the United States mapping of potential proxy battlegrounds uh, in the Middle East during the Cold War. Um, so citizens living in the greater Middle East have not had their human rights respected in the same way that Europeans or Westerners have. So to humanize the drone warfare debate, we need to share the personal testimonies of those most affected. Um, and I really do strongly encourage you to share some of the stories that I've uh, told you this afternoon. Um, Royal Australian Air Force Chief Air Marshal Brown told News Corps Australia in 2015 that opponents of the armed drone concept are emotional and that they don't know what they're talking about. Um, I find this quote rather hilarious because I certainly feel that I know what I'm talking about, and the more that I learn about drone warfare, the more emotional I get. Uh, I think that to not have an emotional reaction to what's going on uh, would to be, is basically being a sociopath. I think and I hope that many Australians would react with sadness and anger if they were to hear the stories that I heard from the Afghan people that I met. Okay, so now moving on to a separate but related issue that's also heavy going. I do apologize. Um, so much like the language used by the government and the military to evade the realities of what goes on under drones, Recent deals between Australian universities, the Department of Defense, and overseas weapons manufacturers likewise present a very sanitizing view. Um, last year, my university announced that it was opening a joint research lab with one of the most unethical entities in the world, the American's weapons manufacturer, Lockheed Martin. Yes, boo, absolutely boo. <laughs> Um, the university fought me tooth and nail through my ethics application process to interview victims of war. 
So I'm somewhat perplexed as to how Lockheed Martin got through the ethics approval process. Lockheed Martin will be producing uh, research with the University of Melbourne and RMIT, including offering scholarships to PhD students and postdocs. Um, we already see in the press releases surrounding this uh, a whitewashing of the purpose of the research. We hear buzzwords like cutting-edge STEM research. This is the world's largest weapons manufacturer. The technologies designed and developed at the lab will be produced and sold for war. And for the foreseeable future, that means the so-called war on terror, dropping bombs and missiles on black and brown people across the greater Middle East. Lockheed Martin, with its eyes on profit above all else, sells weapons to human rights abusing countries, repressive regimes, and known terrorist sponsors. It has repeatedly faced allegations of fraud, wherein its staff have bribed international politicians to buy the company's weaponry. I'm preaching to the converted here. You guys already know all of this. Um, it's also been tried and found guilty of major environmental damage, um, and only last year was forced by the U.S. Department of Justice to pay $5 million uh, to settle a case of not declosing or safely storing enriched uranium. Um, it produces the Hellfire missiles that are used on drones and much of the underlying surveillance program, uh, underlying surveillance infrastructure of the drone program. Uh, you can see on the slide the sort of the difference in the language that's used versus the, versus the reality. So we see uh, that it's boosting innovation rather than developing weapons and surveillance. Um, Lockheed Martin is called an advanced technology company rather than a weapons manufacturer. Um, and on the right-hand side is one of my interview participants in Afghanistan whose 23-year-old brother was killed by a Hellfire missile and he lost his leg. Um, and this is not just happening in Victoria, it's also South Australia too. So uh, British weapons manufacturer BAE Systems uh, recently developed a similar partnership with University of South Australia, University of Adelaide and Flinders University. BAE Systems faces several allegations of bribery and corruption. Um, its third largest customer is Saudi Arabia, representing 20% of its sales. Saudi Arabia is currently, as we speak, committing mass war crimes against Yemeni civilians. Um, I interviewed Andrew Feinstein, the author of uh, The Shadow World Inside the Global Arms Trade, about these uh, deals with weapons man manufacturers. And he says that academic freedom is affected horrifically by these partnerships. It is the ultimate corporatization of education, he says. It's limit it limits what is taught and the ways in which research can contribute to a more peaceful and productive world. Feinstein says that military funding has grown so much in U.S. universities that it's now extremely difficult to undertake research without the support of the military. We risk the same sort of re-academic environment enclosed by the military in Australia if we let these deals go ahead. Militar militarized research is encouraged by these partnerships and financially rewarded over research on peace and diplomacy, and this normalizes war and violence. Um, we're 16 years into this war on terror. I'm of the war on terror generation. I was only, hang on, I've got to figure this out. I was very young when 9-11 happened. I have no memories of the world before 9-11 that are at least sort of critical, independent thoughts. Um, 
And terrorism is showing no, no sign of waning. This is a forever war. So the Taliban in, the, in Afghanistan, for example, is at its strongest point as it, um, as it was since the intervention in 2001. And these, li these so-called liberation missions in Iraq um, are killing hundreds of civilians, the bombardment campaigns, and there's no comprehensive plan outlined for what's going, what kind of governance is going to fall into the power vacuums created. So this is where Australia's universities should be intervening to offer their critical analysis. Academics are meant to be... Academics are meant to be thinking critically about the world um, and helping to develop a deep understanding of society's most urgent and confounding problems and to come up with innovative solutions. And university students should be encouraged to do the same. To do this, universities must strive to be as independent as possible from government interests and that of arms manufacturers so that their researchers and their students can freely critique the government's status quo approach to the war on terror without fear of backlash. And that could be in the form of loss of research funding, loss of career opportunities, um, but also the kind of workplace conflict that's created if you're standing, out, uh, standing up against the, the weapons manufacturer, but your colleague, you know that they're getting some sort of research funding from that manufacturer. This is happening alongside the neoliberalization of universities, and they go hand in hand. Um, and the reasons why academics might be turning to uh, weapons manufacturers like Lockheed Martin and BAA Systems is that they themselves are really struggling to get research funding in this neoliberal environment. Um, and it's also uh, much more likely that students would be encouraged to take Department of Defense University scholarships or um, summer work placements uh, because they are facing an alternative of huge amounts of debt and job insecurity. Um, so I think that as we protest the militarization of universities, we need to think about uh, the economic context in which uh, that's coming about. And that's all for now. Thank you. That was Alex Etney Brown speaking about neoliberalism and the militarization of universities at the IPAN conference. You're listening to the Radioactive Show, produced this week by me, AC, and brought to you with the support of ACE Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth. If you're interested to learn more about Alex's work and the proposed Lockheed Martin Weapons Research Laboratory, she'll be speaking at a forum on Saturday, October 7th at 11am at Arts Hall, University of Melbourne. That forum is being put on by a group, Lockout Lockheed. That's it for today. Thanks to Annie McLaughlin, who recorded Alex Etney Brown's talk at the IPAN conference. Um, to learn more about IPAN, check out their website. That's www.ipan.org.au. This show was produced at 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, and distributed across these stolen lands that we call Australia on the Community Radio Network. You'll find Radioactive Show online at 3cr.org.au backslash radioactive, and that's three the digit. And you can get in touch with us by looking us up on Facebook or via email at radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and here's to a nuclear-free future. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. 
And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist World this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voice is broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.